Started. We got a lot to cover. Ready? Five. Two, one. Renal physiology, a complex yet logically and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our ongoing mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm, the Burton Rose Book Club and Cocktail Club. <laughs> My name is Joel Toth, and I'll be your host today. Tonight, we are adopting a freely filtered tradition to channel your enthusiasm. Welcome to the first and likely only <laughs> diuretic draft. <laughs> the rules are simple. We have eight diuretics and we had to dig deep to get eight on the draft board <laughs> and after 30 frames of bowling last night we have established our draft order each person will pick their diuretic and defend the choice in front of our esteemed panel let's start by introducing the channelers in order of bowling scores uh -huh. from the top Letitia Rowland with a wicked average of 148 in three games introduce yourself Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Leticia, and uh, I'm a nephrologist at UCSF. Coming in second was Anna Gaddy with a strong 138. Uh, thank you. I'm Anna Gaddy. I am also in my in my non-bowling career an assistant professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Wait, and what is your bowling what is your bowling name? Ah, uh, yes, I am the voice number one because I frequently think of things I want to say afterward, and Joel has to splice them in. <laughs> so I'm the voice of that. Pleasure to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Letitia, can we get your bowling name? Yeah, so my name is Loops of Leti. Leti is my nickname, but I, of course I picked Loops because they're my favorite diuretic. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I bowled my personal best at 135. I am kidney boy. Roger Rodby with a 123. That's pretty dismal. I'll catch up. <laughs> Anybody that bowls, that's yeah. like one one gutter ball and then maybe one <laughs> one, one one spare. Uh, Roger Rodby, uh, Rush University Medical Center, Chicago. My uh, bowling name is Buffer Boy because I'm obsessed with buffers. So <laughs> you can't see these, but they're actually embroidered very nicely on our on our pockets, which is only appropriate for a bowling shirt. Josh Waitsman, just behind Roger at one twenty one. Hi there. I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Bowling shirt is toad bladder because I really <laughs> appreciate the beauty of the toad bladder as a system to study ion channel physiology. And then uh, Amy Yao surprised herself and everybody else bowling an average 113 strong work. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, uh, I'm Amy. I'm a nephrologist at the Ohio State University in Columbus, uh, and my bowling name is Voice Two because I also frequently forget to say things, and Joel has to help us out. So, and then uh, JC Velez broke 100, just barely, but he did break 100. <laughs> Juan Carlos Velez, nephrologist at Auctioner in New Orleans, and uh, I, I, I have a story prescribing ammonium chloride for metabolic alkalosis. So I came up with demonium sauride. <laughs> <laughs> and Melanie, let's just call it what it is. It was a pathetic showing, okay? 
a 76 <laughs> in oh. last place. <laughs> Melanie Honig, what do you, what do you have to you. show for yourself? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, I, it, it bodes poorly for <laughs> what my choice will be today. Um, and so I'm Melanie Honig. I'm from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And my name is The Clap. <laughs> and I know what you're thinking, but it's because I really love when we do the clap at the beginning of the podcast. So. <laughs> and the clap is something that you just saw that lets Joel sync up the tracks when we're editing in post. Yes. That's her story and she's sticking That's, with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leticia, do you want to lead off our draft? What is your first draft pick? Well, I'm going to stay true to my name. So I'm, I'm glad that I get to go first because I'm going to go with loops, of course. Um, so loops are my favorite because they're the, I think they're the granddaddies of all diuretics. So it, just to take us a little bit back about, um, you know, why diuretics. So since the beginning of medicine, the 1600s, they, it used to be called dropsy, what used to be known as just a state of volume overload. So if any patient was diagnosed with a pleural effusion, ascites, edema, they were uh, deemed to have dropsy. And so the, and, and it was early on, uh, pretty much known that this was due to a dysfunction of, of, uh, the liver, the kidneys, or the heart. But it wasn't until Dr. Bright from um, Guy's University in London who um, actually associated in postmortem studies that people with kidney failure and had a lot of edema, they actually had low albumin. So that was the first time uh, that was associated. And so really trying to get rid of volume, getting rid of fluid from the body is something that we've been struggling with for hundreds of years. And people tried bleeding, making people sweat, and, and even mechanically removing fluid from the extremities. So there was these things, these silver tubes that were in, like just literally stuck into patients' legs to drain them. Um, so they were called Southie tubes. And believe it or not, I mean, it sounds really terrible because it's probably, it was probably as terrible as it sounds because they were literally just sticking these uh, silver tubes into patients' legs to um, to drain them. And they used to get really infected. And sometimes they just continued to drain forever. They just didn't stop. But And it sounds super archaic, but they were actually, there's documented use even up until the 1960s. So it's not like this is that old. Um, but really the first, um, uh, and other things were also tried, like using Toxic metals like mercury and a lot of mercurials were used. Um, and Did you draft mercury? I just want to make sure. I thought I diuretics. Can we get into, we get into the loops? But you know, mercury. <laughs> oh, so I'm going to tell you what, why why I'm giving you all this history. Well, because we had, like, the first diuretic was carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. So like back in like the, the 1930s, the OG diuretic. So, but mercurials actually, like a part of the way that they work as a diuretic is they, they helped they acted on the thickening limb a little bit. And so that was part of the diuretic effect from your curls. So but that was an accidental thing, it, right? Yeah, like, but no, I mean, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, it's like, I just, <laughs> I mean, it just, it just yeah. goes to show you that people will really do anything but wear compression setting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. I really want to share with you an early story of the discovery of mercurial diuretics. This comes to us from Alfred Vogel. He published it in 1950, but he describes his experience as a third-year medical student in 1919 when he worked at the famous Wenkebach Clinic in Vienna. Apparently, a patient with congenital syphilis was admitted, and he said she was not really an interesting case, but they admitted her as a favor to the family. 
and he was tasked with giving her mercury for her syphilis, and he did this. But what followed was amazing. Apparently, at that time, at the Wenkeback Clinic, and I'd like to quote, a new generation of nurses was evolving. They were ambitious, inspired, and with good educational backgrounds and training. Making beautiful charts was their pride, with everything recorded and listed in various colors, and urine was blue. Urine was collected and measured daily on all patients, blue columns of varying heights clearly indicating the 24-hour production. So this patient with congenital syphilis receives the mercurial and then promptly excretes 1,200 cc's of urine compared to her usual 200 to 500 cc's charted. He was very curious and presented it on rounds, but he got only a benevolent smile and a rather lengthy but unconvincing discussion of the wave-like rhythm of biologic function. But after four days, they gave another injection, and again, the tall blue columns promptly reappeared, no longer suggesting a coincidence. And then they tried it on another patient, this patient who had syphilitic heart disease and advanced congestive heart failure. And shortly after he received the mercurial injection intramuscularly, this patient had urine output throughout the day and night, and by the next morning, to our amazement, over 10 liters. They were convinced that they had witnessed the greatest man-made diuresis in history. And so with these reports, mercurial diuretics were popularized, first in Vienna and then elsewhere. Immediately after these were publicized, there were a series of severe mercury intoxications, including one fatal hemorrhagic colitis. If this had happened before the report, then mercurial diuretics would never have become available and in mainstream use. So an exciting story from 1919. Yeah. And then, you know, and then we got to the thiazides in the 50s, but, you know, well, I'm not, like, loops are better. And so in the 1960s, this is when um, loops were discovered. Believe it or not, it was, they were developed from the first antibiotic used to treat syphilis. So not the clap, but <laughs> another, <laughs> another STD. Um, so that's how, um, that's how the loop diuretics were, were essentially developed. And th- it wasn't until 20 years later, 1984, that Bumex was uh, developed. But the thing that why I really love loops is because there's just so many actions like really intricate ways in which they work they and we all know that they block the sodium potassium two chloride channel in the thick ascending limb of the loop of henley but they also actually block those channels in the macula densa and so by doing that they do activate ras and so they don't um, we don't see that significant drop in gfr that sometimes we see with other diuretics and yeah. so i think that's really really unique yeah. And then, yeah, and yeah. just to kind of comment on, and I think that's probably why loop diuretics are considered like the workhorse, right? So all these other diuretics, they they do activate TGF, but but loop diuretics for somehow somehow turn that off, and that's probably why they're so effective as a as a diuretic. Exactly, yeah. They stop the breaking phenomenon. Yeah, and I think yes. that's the that's the unique effect about loops. Yeah, and and they also. Uh, well, I want to get. Wait, I just want to make sure. Do we think renin does not go up when you use loop diuretics? It, it does, right? Yes. No, it does. Yeah. It does go up, right? So it, it does slow this down, but it doesn't eliminate this. Right. But Wait, but, the- but sorry. When you say breaking phenomenon, don't we usually use that to talk about thiazides? 
But it's the same right, the same idea is that if you give additional diuretics, you don't get massive diuresis because the body, the kidney can compensate through increases of ANG2, increases of renin, right? Increases yeah. of spot, uh, uh, aldo, distal, distal reabsorption. Yeah, no, I think that what is unique about loop diuretics is it refers to any other diuretic that would induce volume depletion that increase in renin activity is due to volume depletion. But in the diuretic, in a loop diuretic, there's a direct blockade of the sensor of chloride in the macula densa that leads to the renal. So there's a little bit of magnified uh, effect, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing that they do is that they also um, stimulate prostaglandins, which then cause that arterial, the afferent arterial uh, vasodilation to also kind of prevent that drop in the GFR that we would sometimes see with other diuretics. So I think this is why, um, you know, there's just so many things that they do. And then, you know, for the record, I also want to say because they do this um, and they also they they block the NK2 um, chloride channel. They cause medullary washout. So it's important to always remember this. Why This is the reason, the mechanism, why loop diuretics can never cause hyponatremia. We see it so mentioned so many times in notes like, oh, hyponatremic from Lasix. Like, no, it cannot do that because you have medullary washout. So even if you activate ADH, you're not going to have that osmolar gradient to cause water reabsorption in the collecting duct. So um, always remember that. And use your loop diuretics to treat hyponatremia. Sorry to be, <laughs> I was going to say sorry to be controversial, but oh. uh, never is a big word. That's true. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I think th- that um, the point you're making is very true, that, that loop diuretics cause less hyponatremia than thiazides. God, I wish I had an earlier draft pick. Um, but, <laughs> but, practice, um, Melanie, practice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so they would not cause hyponatremia uh, by interfering with dilution, but you could still have hyponatremia if you developed reduced GFR from diuresis and water intake. Yes, thank you. That is very true, very true. So Letty, what is the highest dose of intravenous Lasix that you have ever prescribed since you're a low Lasix lover. I have gone up to 160 IV. Okay. Can we go down the line? Wait, 160. We, Everybody stand up if they've ever gone higher than 160. IV at once. Anybody, <laughs> oh, gone, higher <laughs> Anybody <laughs> gone higher than 180, sit down. But if you have, wait, no, wait, if wait, 180, wait. If, if you've never gone higher than 180, if you've never gone higher than 180, sit down. If okay. you've gone higher than 180, stand up. Higher than 200, Marcus keep is, standing. Oh. <laughs> So did you have to, did you have to infuse? I mean, how did your pharmacy give you, you know? Yeah, no. Or, this... or was this like on the weekend? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so you were the pharmacist. Yeah, you just. Could we had a microphone to him? <laughs> This is what I was going to say. That yeah, so the, I am yeah. glad you mentioned the deafness. Please talk about deafness right now. Let's talk about deafness. Yeah. So, yeah, no, and Letty brought up to, to this to us when we had the episode, you know, a year ago. So if you look at the reports of, of hearing loss with Lasix, these were patients who were getting 500 milligrams. No, but even the milligram doses in a minute, under four minutes, when... He wrote, and I wrote 300 milligrams of Lasix. It, it took about 60 minutes for that to be infused in a patient. They didn't, pharmacy is not going to mess it up. They take 
a lot more time. So that's a huge difference with this, what happened in the past. In, in Europe, they have, they use much higher doses and they've got 500 milligram tablets that are readily available that they even often give to ESRD patients to help augment uh, some salt water lost in between the in between hemodialysis treatments. So I think, you know, it's a big difference between giving high oral doses and giving very high rapid IV doses. I've only seen ototoxicity once, and that was uh, with a very rapid uh, IV administration, similar to what JC was saying. That hey, smack heart guys- failure study I talked about yesterday was two two fifties twice a day. That was like the, yeah. that was the protocol. And that That's was thousands protocol. of patients. Yeah. So one of the, yeah. These patients were admitted for decompensated heart failure in the study, so I'm guessing they yeah, were. Yeah, and but thank you for mentioning yeah. not-so-gentle-mycin. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a body of literature out there that looks at acute decompensated heart failure and finds increased mortality with use of loop diuretics and kind of a dose response. And it's 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 difficult to do because you can't placebo control these patients because they can't breathe. They have to get loop diuretics. But it is a concerning finding, right? They look at all these other markers that we're trying to suppress in heart failure, ANG2, aldosterone, all these things go up when you give the loop diuretics. And it kind of says, well, how on one hand, and sympathetic nervous system, how on one hand you say we need to use ACE inhibitors, uh, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, and beta blockers to, to people who live in heart failure, and now we're giving a direct that rank, ramps all those hormones up. Yeah, it but, is a, but Joel, that's so much confounding, right? Like you don't give so 200 much. milligrams of Lasix because you think 20 would work. You give it because it's the, the Hail Mary <laughs> pass attempt to, to fix this problem before you break out a hemodialysis machine. So I think it's, you know. Yeah, it's observational. Yes, I, observational. Yeah. I'm just it's saying it'd be hard. great if there was a diuretic that didn't ramp those all up. Okay. Are we ready for the <laughs> second then, I know. I, I, I think, I think okay. Leticia had maybe one more thing she wanted to say, and then we should move along. I, yeah, I know Joel and I are technically I co-moderators. I'm really here to moderate Joel. <laughs> and, and also just to make sure that we were able to get to Melanie's pick at the yeah. end of the session. Yeah. Letty, you got one last moment? Close. I just want to say that a, a, another case for why loops are the best is with, if you do a search, there's a paper, over 20,000 papers with uh, Lasix um, that are uh, that are cited. But uh, the, my favorite is when it was first announced. And it's just, if you see, it's like a big headline, like new diuretic, furosemide. And now I wish I kind of would have put up a graphic, but we'll find it. Maybe we could put it up. Uh, I can't imagine a diuretic draft with nephrologists where loops don't go first. They are a consensus number one choice. Absolutely. Great pick. Great pick. Second pick, Anna. I am going with thiazides. And I just want to say I would have picked thiazides regardless, even if I had bolded. That was a mistake. 151. (laughs) So, okay, hear me out. All right. I love thiazides. You know, they're, they're, they're cheap. They've been around forever. They're effective, you know, great for blood pressure, great for mixing, you know, in your combo pills to keep your potassium down. I am biased because, you know, thiazides were invented by Dr. Sprague, who is from my home state of Wisconsin. So we're basically drinking from the same like aquifer of greatness. <laughs> we're basically, I'm, he's basically my mentor, but I do understand like why thiazides, why you might say that. Like they're not the sex. It's, it's like your neighbor, you know, like they might, you might let them get it's like your Midwestern neighbor. Like maybe you'll let them get your mail while you're on vacation, but they're, you're not, you know, inviting them to your party. Like they're not the sexiest. What I don't are know you if you guys. What about Midwesterners here, Anna? I'm sorry. Huh? <laughs> what? We're not neighbors. 
You can come to my party. There's, there's no insult to say the girl next door. Everybody loves the girl next door. We're fine with that. No, 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 That's no, no, okay. no. Thiazides, the girl next no, door. No, it's like the couple that walks out and asks why you're not married yet. Like not the girl next door. This is like the this is the people in the bathroom. But I'm just saying. <laughs> and if you bathroom, <laughs> but if you if you guys went to Neff JC last night, I don't know if anybody made it to Neff JC last night because of this. But we did talk about the No Stones trial and. I feel like thiazites might not be getting that much love from people at this very moment in time. I, However. I I'm sorry, but I haven't read the paper, but it's it really, I thought the population wasn't really hypercalceric and all well, that. Well, a third of the yeah, patients were hypercalceric. Some of them were, yeah. It's, it's, Any, it's, anyway. It's, okay. Yes, okay. you're right. I think that's why. I, I am with you because I, I, I'm a thiazide believer. But I will say, there's two things I like about thiazides outside of just, you know, the obvious they're useful. There's two things I love in medicine. Number one is an accidental discovery. Love and mm -hmm. beautiful. And two is a paradox. So let me just talk about why thiazides are both of those things. Number one, we probably all know about the accidental discovery of thiazides. They um, we sort of grew For those of us of who don't know that, why don't, you, why don't you tell us a story? <laughs> you don't know all about that? I, I don't know the thiazide well, discovery Well, while story. you were bowling last night... <laughs> You know, if you get all strikes, you have extra time and then you can, yeah. So <laughs> I got like five. So, you know, there was this antimicrobial sulfenamide and basically had um, a diuretic effect. And people noticed that, hey, our patients, you know, that we're trying to treat for infections are peeing all the time and they're developing a metabolic acidosis. Like, what's the deal with that? So from that, thiazide diuretics were sort of gleaned, but they had strong carbonic anhydrase inhibitor activity. And so that was, I think, 1938. And then the next 20-ish years were devoted to making it not a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor and then, you know, working on the biochemistry of that. So that was Dr. Sprague, my, you know, co-cheesehead. Ancestor. Ans ans exactly, exactly. Geographic ancestor. And you know what's interesting is that Sprague was not the Sprague Dolly rat Sprague. Sprague is a good last name for... I know. There's two Sprogs. Yeah. Two Sprogs. So... Anyway, the, so I love that. I love that about them. But the, the thing that I really like about them is the paradox of using thiazides to treat DI. I think that's the coolest thing. And it's, it's, a, it's an effect that's been, I mean, I, I don't know who, who started this, whose idea it was to, you know, give a diuretic to somebody that was peeing too much. Um, it was genius if it wasn't an accident. But I, lo I love that this happened. And so we've known about this for years and years and years. The first time this was reported was by a group uh, from like Harvard and Cambridge uh, simultaneously. They published in, they, they did a Nature Letters. Then they did, they were published in The Lancet that same year, 1959. And then the next year had a New England Journal of Medicine paper. So it was like, their department chairs must have been very happy. It was a, it was a banner year for these guys. So the, just the observation that, hey, this works. It slows down urine output. Um, you know, hey, run with this. Sorry, Dan. I just want to burst your bubble a little bit because <laughs> in rat models with, with diabetes insipidus, so rats do not have NCC. They don't have a thick, uh, distal convolutable and the thiazides still work. So probably because of... Oh, are you getting to it? I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> no, okay, no, no, go, go ahead and steal no, the thunder. Okay, because take of carbonic anhydrase. And and I, I mean, I think it's crazy, but I love that it works. And, you know, kind of, you know, I have looked at this a lot because I was telling Bill Whittier last night, for whatever reason, in Columbus, we have a lot of people on lithium and a lot of people get nephrogenic diabetes. <laughs> yeah. And so I have used it a couple of times. So when I've looked at the literature about this, um, 
it seems that in mice models, it may not really be the carbonic anhydrase inhibiting carbonic anhydrase, but maybe actually affecting aquaporin too and causing- The thiazides directly inhibit? Well, the thiazides have a carbonic anhydrase inhibition effect. Well, inhibiting aquaporin too seems like the wrong way to go with DI. Well, so it's aquaporin two. Yeah, yeah. So it's aquaporin two, and and so there's like a lot of different aquaporins. So, but this type of aquaporin that it inhibits aquaporin two, which is on the apical memory, which helps with um uh, water reabsorption, basically. Mm-hmm. So it, it helps, it encourages free water reabsorption in the in the proximal to, in the uh, collecting them. Yeah, Amy's right about that. There is a literature on, were you going to say that? There is a literature on um, thiazides affecting the collecting duct directly and uh, leading to improved permeability. It kind of bugs me because (laughs) (laughs) I really love teaching about thiazides limiting the diluting segment and that is why that leads to hyponatremia. And so that interferes with the way I want to teach about the kidney segments, but I acknowledge <laughs> uh, that reality that is, is so true. bothersome. And, and there you are the, other diuretics we use for DI that we might also draft later. So I think we'll come back to nephrogenic no, DI. But, I, 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 but, wanna, but wait, 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 hold on. But we got right. one. Well, no, JC, go. Okay. So, no, this is this idea of diabetes insipidus and nephrogenic DI. We think about lithium, we think all these odd things, but. You know, now we have a pharmacological sort of nephrogenic DI uh, when we treat patients with polycystic kidney disease. These guys pee like there's no tomorrow. Because of that demon drug. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's slow down with the demon (laughs) adjective. But but no, now there's actually emergent data using thiazides in addition to the Vapten to counteract this polyuria, which is what you were saying, this paradoxical adding a diuretic to another diuretic to fix the polyuria. It's very cool. And so the tradition for anybody who doesn't know the traditional school of thought is that like the the ba- the base school of thought is you know this causes sodium and chloride depletion uh, sodium and water depletion and so you get decreased GFR and then you basically just get less proximal or less distal delivery of sodium and water and so there's like less leak you're basically diverting a filtrate around the leak and so more reabsorption proximally leads to less polyuria right so it kind of makes sense but <laughs> there's there's been a lot of of interesting experiments that kind of contradict that. So there was one that I thought was really cool. It was in the late 90s. It was done in Denmark. And they basically had mice that they induced a DI with, I th- actually I think that was a hereditary uh, model. And they basically gave them, they measured how much salt they put out after inducing DI. And then they gave them back that salt. And they found that restoring their GFR didn't slow down the poly, it didn't decrease the effectiveness of slowing down the polyuria. So, so it's not that. It's so not there's something a else. Issue. It's um, not. It's not pure. I mean, maybe there is some, but it's not purely that. So it restored their de- exactly, exactly. It's getting worse and worse. I know. I'm really, I'm really killing it here. So, so yeah. So the 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 more current schools of thought are that basically somehow thiazides restore um, aquaporins and epithelial sodium channels. Um, and there's been some cool like immunostaining experiments in that space. So. I can't believe you went through thiazides and didn't land on the largest antihypertensive trial done ever, right? But that's All but had that's sixty thousand. No, I'm, it's I mean okay. that's why they're on the board. I get it, but sixty thousand <laughs> patients, them. and it just it did awesome, right? The yeah. whole point of All Hat was to have the blood pressure the same between amlodipine 
lisinopril and chlorothaladone, and they couldn't give a low enough dose of chlorothaladone to get the blood pressure equivalent to those other two drugs. It just trounced everybody, had a lower blood pressure than everybody, threw off all the statistics and made the study very difficult to interpret because the drug was just too good. Right, but that's like that's like the Clark's Boston. That's like the Keds of, I mean, that's why it's a great shoe. That's not why it's like, you know, you want to wear it on a night out. This is like the cool <laughs> stuff. This is the... This is why it's like flashy and fun, even though it is still the girl when, next When my door. wife wants to impress, she always dresses in Clothalidone. That's right. <laughs> I, want, I want to pull the audience. So you, you're you're seeing a patient for the first time, central hypertension, first drug. Raise your hand if you use a thiazide as your first choice. About a fourth. Okay. What about There second, you go. What about second drug? Even what if a, I didn't use it as my first drug? Yeah, if you didn't use it. Okay. No, you can't do that. Right. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. You just got, you got to find the right dose. Do we have a, do we have a, uh, any, other, any other comments any on chlorothalidone? Yeah. Thiazides. Or thiazides? No. Nothing on stones? No, I mean, we can't talk all about hyperuricemia. Hyperglycemia. Just a quick comment, and I... I, I, was, I need to know, uh, Anna, you shared with us that when thiazides were initially discovered, mm -hmm. they worked in the chemical aspect to remove the carbonic anhydrase. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that was very cool. I didn't yeah. know that. But like Amy said earlier, my understanding is that there's a variety of degree of carbonic anhydrase inhibition among different thiazides, like metolazone. Chlorothalidone apparently have a graded, and maybe that's why they're more potent. Isn't that? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I couldn't actually pull the original papers. I was, I was looking for the original papers, um, but they were sort of like observed. My institution does not have 1938 access, actually. Mm. I know, <laughs> so I couldn't, so I couldn't find them. I didn't know how, um, but there actually is a really nice. If you're interested in that, there was a really cool like homage to Dr. Sprague about the whole like how I did it, which was really neat to hear. But you know, not great fodder for and the podcast. That'll be in the show notes. That, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. show. And maybe your institutions will have access. <laughs> right, so Someone anybody, send it to me. Anybody looking at Medical College of Wisconsin know that you won't be able to access <laughs> you are literature not from be the able 1930s. To get, yeah, so yeah. consider that, you know, when you consider where yes, you're going to be. The annals <laughs> of antique medicine. Yes, <laughs> we don't have that. All right, come on. Let me just say something about thiazides and hyponatremia again. I know I brought this up earlier, but one mystery is why thiazides cause hyponatremia more commonly in women. And the mystery is not solved. This was examined in rats who, it must be a variant of rats different from the one you mentioned that do have NCC. And they found that the female rats had more NCCs in the distal convoluted tubule than the male rats. And then, this is wacky, they did oophorectomies on these rats. What? Yeah. I don't know how they do that. And they found that the very carefully, <laughs> very carefully, and the NCC endowment decreased. And then they could ameliorate that with um, estrogen. So this group thought uh, this must be the reason that women are more sensitive to thiazides because they have more NCC. Problem with that theory for Menopause. me yeah. is that this problem is so severe in. Postmenopausal post women, women. Yeah. so it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> yeah, no. But I thought it was entertaining, um, and I, I think Roger has a comment about. It. Well, the, the, the same thing holds true for uh, ecstasy-induced uh, hyponatremia. It's much, much more common in women, despite the same uh, same intake and, and uh, what about, ecstasy. How what about, old are yes. you? <laughs> okay. What do they call it now? Uh, Molly? Molly. Oh come on! You guys have teenagers. Um, <laughs> what about Sco ecstasy Scooby snacks? Uh, what about? 
That's different. What about ecstasy-induced hyponatremia in postmenopausal women? <laughs> Unstudied. We're piloting. We're piloting. Well, postmenopausal here. women don't take X, so. They call it something else now. I don't know what they call it. They call it X-lax. I'm so lax. <laughs> oh. it's, it's a different problem. I feel so lame now. But but there's there's definitely be. something about estrogen because post-operative women there's you know develop much more hyponatremia pre when they're menstrual as opposed to being menopausal. So there's definitely something about estrogen and the effect whether it's on the tubule or not or or defective ADH release or whatever. So it, that, there's huge gender differences. Yeah, I, guess I agree. Thiazide-induced hyponatremia is so interesting. It's not like what I teach my medical schools, medical students is just a lie. Like I give the argument, oh, they get <laughs> no, they get volume depleted and that that activates mm-hmm. ADH, so they can't tolerate a water intake and they get hyponatremia. But if you actually look at the case reports, these patients develop hyponatremia within hours of their first dose. They and we learned from so Melanie yesterday that ADH does not rise for secret volume depletion. And it's not secret volume. My, yeah, my yeah. new, my new yeah. favorite phrase. So, so it is a much more complex and interesting thing. There was a we did an FJC on it a few years ago. We look mm-hmm. at it was a genetic analysis. Yeah. It is very dependent on uh, prostaglandins, mm-hmm. and um, and I've seen that in, I've seen that in action. So it's pretty. It's a pretty interesting disease. More interesting than it sounds. More interesting than we teach our third year medical students. And so, you do-, do you guys notice how many more interesting comments we had to make about thiazides than loops? That's all I'm saying. Oof. Well, so yeah. so I w- I will give one plug to loops. So first thing, I just want to make a couple comments. I'll make it real fast. First, in terms of the diuretic effect and using it as hypertension, I do like to use thiazides a lot, but I do have a lot of little ladies who get hyponatremic. They have resistant hypertension. They're really difficult to treat. And I think a lot of it is salt-sensitive hypertension. They're not on a diuretic. They're on five other agents, but not one of them is a diuretic, right? And so in those patients, I actually do use a low-dose loop diuretic. And that seems to kind of help ameliorate the hyponatremia, control their blood pressure to at least so they don't get these big swings up and down throughout the day. And so I do like to use loops almost like an antihypertensive as well a little bit. And I also really like, we didn't talk about it, but the click trial and that basically, you know, when I was a medical student and learning, you could never use thiazides when you were a CKD4 because it just quote unquote didn't mm-hmm. work. But click really showed us that that's not the case. And so I I love getting that resistant hypertension patient and being like, you know what, let's put you on chlorothaladone or let's do a thiazide. And I really do see the blood pressure start to improve. And that's very rewarding, I would say. So how do you choose the loop instead of uh, spironolactone as your diuretic in those patients? Oh, just if I think it's like salt sensitive hypertension, then I usually just put them on a loop. I think that's just a little bit better for it. So, and then just one final point about the no stone. I knew there was an FJC about it last night, but I, you know, I don't often use thiazides as my first line agent for stones, even in patients who are hypo hypercalciuric. And part of it is because some of these patients are a little bit hypocitraturic as well. And citrate can chelate the calcium in the urine and and lower the urine calcium as well. And so I don't really, you know, if they're still hypercalciuric despite low salt intervention and their citrate is kind of borderline, uh, then then I'll actually do potassium citrate uh, over a thiazide. Yeah. So, so we should probably so we, move on to we gotta move. Person. We got we to we gotta move on. Go on to our third pick in the draft. I'm going to go with SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, okay, right? Because I don't come yeah, to cheer likes, yeah. traditional diuretics. I come to bury them, okay? <laughs> Why do we give medicine in general? We give them so patients live longer. I look at a list of diuretics and I only see two that cause people to live longer and I'm picking the one that's better and that's SGLT2 inhibitors, okay? And and that's it because, right, I'm a flozenator. Who else is a flozenator? Raise your hand if you're a flozenator, right? The whole room 
is flozinators. We love these drugs because they're great. Okay. Not everybody raised their hand, Joel. No, they didn't. No, they really don't want the people that didn't are wrong. (laughs) Oh, they they didn't know there was such a geeky word for it. That's the problem. Or or they're dietitians. Like, let's give everyone some credit. They're crowd. That's a good point. That's a good point. They might not be wrong. They might just be dietitians. Who, who are who are never wrong? Let's be. <laughs> who are never? Yes, who are never this wrong? This is where you throw tomatoes. Okay, so we've been loving on SGLT two inhibitors, fangirling. We we've like fangirling. We've been fangirling on SGLT two inhibitors because they're great for slowing down diabetic nephropathy, slowing down CKD. They're great for heart failure. They keep people from going and being hospitalized, and they keep people from dying. But what we're starting to see this is a this is a drug that is good for a heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. We're now starting to see data coming out on SGLT2 inhibitors in acute decompensated heart failure. This stuff is new, right? So this, and to me, acute decompensated heart failure, that's the arena where diuretics need to prove themselves, right? That's where we push the dose of diuretics so far that we push them into acute kidney injury. So if your drug doesn't deliver an acute decompensated heart failure, you're worthless. Now, our first two choices are staples in acute decompensated heart failure. And the third one is going to become a staple. SGLT2 inhibitors are going to become a, a staple here. And it's been interesting watching this, the data develop. So the earliest data that we have in acute decompensated heart failure is a study called Soloist. And this is a study of a drug that's not yet approved called Soto Sotagliflozin, which is actually a little bit different than our SGLT2 inhibitors because it also has SGLT1 activity. And one of the problems with SGLT1 is that there are SGLT1 transporters in the gut. And so this drug blocks that reabsorption of glucose. Diarrhea or constipation? Diarrhea. They get diarrhea as 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 a consequence of this. And in the Soloist trial, they prescribed this to people with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction. They were admitted with acute decompensated heart failure. They started the drug kind of when they went whole. They started right before discharge. (laughs) Hopefully not the day of discharge. Have a good ride. Well, discharge in multiple ways. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, this resulted in a reduction in mortality by a third and a reduction in readmission for heart failure by about 50%. And a phenomenally strong result. And it's interesting, the study was actually stopped early because the sponsor withdrew support. And I think after they then published it, the sponsor came back. It's like, okay, we actually like this drug. But um, they Wait, were very- Was that cons- compared to SGLT2 inhibitors or was that considered placebo. nothing? No, it's considered a placebo. So then, um, and and that's, I, th- I think that's 2020. The next study is Impulse. And this has got a, this got a lot of press. This is a pretty high profile study. This is Empagliflozin, 10 milligrams started after we had stabilized patients with acute decompensated heart failure. So people come into the hospital, they get their acute diuretics. Three days later, on average, they started this drug and then they continued it afterwards. And they also had a profound, they reduced mortality. This was um, 90 day results, reduced mortality by half. And they reduced re, uh, hospitalizations and ER visits by something like 30 or 40%. So really strong effect for SGLT2 inhibitors. But none of this of what I'm talking about so far has been kind of the diuretic effect. That's really focused on kind of the outcomes that we're used to seeing with SGLT2 inhibitors. The third one is called MPAG-HF. And this is a this is literally their thing. We want to use um, empagliflozin in the same way that we're using thiazides as sequential nephron blockade. And they started this within 12 hours of admission. And that's hard to do, hard to get patients enrolled in a randomized clinical, clinical trial that quickly after admission for acute decompensated heart failure. They were able to do this. This is a German study, so you know which flag to put on your presentation. <laughs> and uh, 
and they <laughs> had a dramatic a 25% increase in diuresis. So w- would that interest you, getting a 25% increase in diuresis in patients with acute decompensation? So that was added to a loop and a thiocyte? Was that it third? was added to just a loop. Just yeah, to a thing. loop. I don't, yeah. This is the problem that happened with Albert too. You know, I like to see it as a third because we already do two. Except for what we don't, what we don't have with adding thiazides is any kind of survival data, which I just presented. So we have the survival and the re- preventing from readmission, but this is now showing. But we've that, got the you can afford it data. Well, there's the, there's that. We'll get to that. But what we're seeing now is that these drugs actually, this is not acting just as a kind of a mystery heart failure drug. This drug actually increases naturesis. And we have additional data that shows that it definitely, in addition to a loop, has a dramatic effect increasing the fractional excretion of sodium. These are truly diuretics in the in the situation in the in the case of, of heart failure. So these patients had increased uh, fluid loss, increased weight loss during their hospitalization. This is started within 12 hours. And they did the, you know, we have additional data and from other studies that looked at these drugs don't have the increase in renin. They don't have the increase in ANG2. They don't have the increase in aldactone, which is what I was talking about earlier as I was setting up my pick, right? That these drugs don't have those negative neurohormonal effects that we're trying to avoid in heart failure. These really make sense as the kind of the perfect acute decompensated heart failure. So did they measure naturesis or are you just saying that? They measured weight loss and fluid loss. Okay. And in other studies, they have measured naturesis okay. with its additive effect to to diuretics. So if you so had Joel, gotten you... to go first, would you have picked that over loops? No, loops diuretics failure? always win. <laughs> <laughs> we said it's a consensus number one. But right? then you were throwing a lot of smack about how only two of these uh, provide mortality benefit. I know. This one provides a mortality benefit. Beat that. So, I can't. I had to pick okay. second. So, Joel, I know it's a diuretic discussion here, but uh, you know, you make a strong case for their their, their diuretic effectiveness. Do you think that plays the role in their cardio and renal protection? I absolutely do. I think, you know, one of the big headlines from All Hat was that it reduced heart failure compared to amlodipine and lisinopril. And I always thought, oh, big whoop. You showed that a diuretic was good for heart failure, right? And now we have these SGLT2s that are so great for heart failure. I think we shouldn't discount the fact that, yeah, these are diuretic drugs, right? And they're better than most diuretics because they don't activate the neurohormonal access that we think is negative in heart. So what about all tubular glomerular feedback and the whole fancy mechanism? You think that's just a... a no, I'm not going to give it a just because I don't know. Here's why. No, but here's why you can't give it a just because in in um, DAPA CKD patients that went on dialysis. Now there were fewer of those patients that went on dialysis that were on DAPA than were on placebo, but there were some, and they looked at. Uh, heart failure outcomes in those patients that went on dialysis, and they were 20% lower in the DAPA group. And I don't think you're going to get much diuretic effect with DAPA at uh, GFRs of zero. And and that study, we're going to actually do a, that, a specific randomized controlled trial looking at that population as part of the lifestyle trial that's now enrolling if you're in the Netherlands. Anybody from the Netherlands? <laughs> Nobody. Okay. So that may be full follows along with this energy yeah who knows, right then then you get to the magic of yeah. SGLT2 yeah, there, there's that mystery heart right there's right. a lot of mystery out there but i but here's the deal I do is love that mystery. we're so focused on the mystery because that's the cool thing that i think we're kind of discounting and not and ignoring the fact that these are naturetic drugs these are diuretics and they're powerful diuretics and they're diuretics in just the kind of way that you want without this inoral hormonal access so Joe, clarify something for me because you know you keep i don't i haven't kept up the literature uh on SGLT2s lately. 
I remember uh, reading a paper that showed that the natureses did not correlate with glucosuria. Yes, that is this. Uh, in fact, you're pulling up this. It's called this paper is published in Circulation in 2020. It didn't have a snap. Intuitive, yeah. right? It's, because we yeah. think it's, it's so weird. Yes, that so, is absolutely true. So, do we know how is how that happens? <laughs> That's my favorite uh, emoji. <laughs> I have no idea. But now, anybody in the audience? Yeah, who's got, who's got some game on that? Why is that? Anybody? Well, if you found if you if you're looking for a group that the mystery is, we will be impressed by the fact that it's natriuretic. I think you found your people. That's that's good enough good for now. I, I mean, I I definitely agree with everything you said, Joel. Um, however. Um, <laughs> uh, let's just you know you have to be careful with this medication you have to be careful uh, you know something that euglycemic ketoacidosis can mm -hmm. occur and it's not trivial um, you know I'm sure many of you have encountered that in your practice let's actually do that who has seen euglycemic DKA in practice raise your hand wow oh, the whole, wow. Oh, more I than people that it. use yes you'll see doing it <laughs> More people wow. have seen euglycemic ketosis okay, than okay. prescribed thiazidiuretic. My point is, <laughs> <laughs> we've all—it's too confused. many instructions. My point, yeah. and I have one. My point, and I have one, is that one of the things about the early case reports of euglycemic DKA is these patients usually had metabolic acidosis for like weeks until somebody could figure out like nobody could figure oh. out the diagnosis and my and what i believe now is now that everybody's heard of it like you see that you see that euglycemic euglycemic glycosuria on the ua and you're like oh this looks like somebody's on an sglt2 inhibitor even though it's not on the med list because it has a hangover effect for a while and you're like oh i think that they must have been on the pain you look at their old meth list there it is and you make the diagnosis pretty quickly which is very different than the early case reports where they weren't making the diagnosis for a long period of time and my and my conclusion is this is not as serious now that we have really smart doctors and everybody well and, thank you yes i think that's I what think, I meant. Yes, you should say thank you. I think telling us about so how smart we are is, is a good place to move on to the next pick, if that's okay. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It is we, a good place to move on to the next pick. The next pick is Roger. Roger Rodby, what do you got? <laughs> I want uh, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, MRAs. Yes. Steroidal or non-steroidal? Oh, oh stero no, just only, only steroidal. And that's what I want to talk about. That's what I want to talk about. Yeah, you know, I've been kind of deep deep diving into uh, steroids lately. I did, you know, yesterday uh, a talk on uh, parent mineral record excess, and it, you know, it has all to do with the history of steroids and how steroids work, and what's a mineral corticoid and what's a glucocorticoid. So I'm going to go back and give a little history of this whole thing. Uh, I love history. Eustachia was an Italian that discovered adrenal glands in like the 15th, 1500s, and then it wasn't really not much happened until about the mid. 1800s when Thomas Addison, of course, you know, from Addison's disease, figured out that these people were dying of basically starvation and, and, and wasting away, did autopsies and found that their adrenal glands were all shrunk up and, and then became Addison's disease. And then not much happened in, in that realm. You know, steroids really weren't synthesized until the 30s and 40s. But in the 30s, they made the discovery of DOC, DOC, deoxycorticosterone. And deoxycorticosterone is the Precursor, the direct precursor for aldosterone, but it was many years before they figured out aldosterone. But they knew that it was a mineral corticoid because they would give it and they would see that the urine sodium would go down and the urine potassium would go up and then the animals would develop hypertension. And they would do this by getting, you know, they'd get cow adrenal glands and they'd 
find this crystalline, you know, material. But there was still this residue left in the of what was left of where after they extracted the doke. And they found that the residue left actually still caused the same uh, effects on on the kidney or or with with sodium retention, et cetera. And they didn't really know what it was, but they called it electrocortin, which kind of makes sense, electrolytes cortin. And it wasn't until a while later that they were actually able to figure out that it was aldosterone. And they did this, this is now in the 50s. So 20 years later, it took from from deoxycorticosterone to become, figure out that it was el- the, the actual measurement of uh, the chemical structure of aldosterone. And they did it because they found that it, there was an aldehyde group, that's the aldo part, that was on the one instead of a methyl group in the, in the ester, the cholesterol molecule. And it, what's interesting is they, as I mentioned, they used to take cow adrenal glands and start extracti- extracting this stuff. And when they figured out aldosterone, the adrenal glands are 20 grams or something. They're not very heavy. And it required 500 kilograms of 500 kilograms of adrenal glands. Kilo. From that 500 kilograms, they got enough to figure out aldosterone. 500 kilograms <laughs> is what a cow weighs. And 500 kilograms of adrenal gland is about 20,000 cows. So it took 20,000 cattle giving their adrenal glands to come up with (laughs) enough material to figure out that electrocortin is now aldosterone because it had this aldehyde group. I thought that was very cool. (laughs) Shortly thereafter, a guy named Khan, uh, C-O-N-N, realized that it caused Khan's disease. And Khan was from the University of Michigan. Anybody here from the University of Michigan? Well, undergrad. Yeah, of course. I mean, you talk about it all the time. No, no one's been rejected from the University of Michigan more than I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's being shy, but he's quite an alum. When you, you see when they when they're playing uh, when when they're in, we're in the NCAA tournament. Um, well, it wasn't until the '60s that you know pr- progesterone is anti a mild antagonist to aldosterone, and so they started playing around with progesterone and adding groups that they came out with spironolactone. And so it really wasn't until, you know, 30 years after, 40 years after that they were able to come up with an antagonist to, that now we know is, I finally got to my drug. You know what the original name, you know what the original name of primary hyperaldo was? Khan syndrome? No, the wrath of Khan. Nice. So now this has been around. It wasn't until the 70s that the mineral corticoid receptor was even figured out. So this is 40 years after, you know, we knew that you've got this medicine from this, this draw, this, this extract from cow adrenals that causes sodium retention. And then it wasn't, you know, another decade later that they figured out that how these things even work. They go in the cell and they affect protein synthesis and the like. And then finally in the 80s, it took to the 80s before 11 beta hydroxy steroid dehydrogenase was even figured out, which is a really, really important enzyme because that is what converts cortisol to cortisone and makes cortisol, which is our number one um, uh, glucocorticoid in our bodies, not affect not effective in the kidney uh, because, it, because it is a, a very potent a stimulator of the mineral corticoid receptor, but it gets converted to inactive cortisone through this enzyme, which is, of course, what licorice inhibits. And if you were at my talk yesterday, you'll now know the posaconazole and iatrocotazole yeah. does the same thing. It's the new licorice. It's the new so, licorice? The new licorice. <laughs> um, my history of, of spironolactone, you know, I became a resident in 82. And back then, spironolactone was really just used for liver failure. And, uh, and because, you know, it was not really appreciated that the diuretic that I think it is, it's not a great diuretic by itself because of, you know, every, you know, if you start spilling something that 
distally, it's so easily to re, you know reclaim it proximally. We talked a little bit about breaking earlier, but you know, spironolactone is or aldo- aldosterone is thought to be so high in liver failure, not only because of secondary hyperaldosteronism, but the fact that they don't break it down. Kind of the thought behind high progesterone and liver failure and testicular atrophy and some of the spiders and things like that. So, you know, let's attack this. Not only do you make a lot of aldosterone, but you don't break it down. So we'll, we'll, we'll use uh, spironolactone. And that was the only time it was ever used. And we didn't use very much of it. I don't know. I'm one of the older people in the, in the crowd here. But I think it had a bit of a, a resurgence when the RALS trial came out, not as a diuretic, but as a cardioprotective drug. Um, where it protected people with heart failure from death and morbidity and mortality. This is a diuretic that protects people from death. How unique. Uh, <laughs> as, as, as Joel says, that's an endpoint my patients are. Can someone turn off his microphone, please? <laughs> this is the problem with him being our, our recording master. We, we can't actually turn off his microphone. <laughs> But we're now seeing a lot more of, you know, of it being used. Uh, but, you know, the interesting thing about it is they use very small doses in that trial, 25 to 50 milligrams. And, you know, I, we use various amounts for whatever, you know, depending on what we're using it for. If we're using it as an adjunctive diuretic, you know, we can go way up. If you're using it for primary hyperaldosterism, sometimes it can require two or 300 milligrams a day, which is a huge problem, you know, in men especially because of gynecomastia. There's a, a plerinone, which is much more selective. It doesn't have the, a, the, uh, the, um, androgen blocking um effects uh but it's a lot it, it, it it's half as effective so you need twice the dose and it's hard to get approved and, and everything else but uh why why is it hard to get approved because it's been around forever i, I don't yeah. understand that yeah i don't know uh why is farm d farm d i mean you know that's yeah. that's like a, that's a rhetorical question but you know it shouldn't be it really shouldn't be it should be an easily attainable drug because it's not you know, gynecomastia is not a, it's not a mild thing. It's but like, it's right. like, here's, it's, it's like so minoxidil in women, you know, you don't ignore that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They thought it was expensive. And then uh, Bayer was like, let me show you Finerino. Yeah. <laughs> the other, one of the reasons I like it too, I just really quickly, we were, we're not going to talk much about uh, the real mechanisms here, but uh, what I really like about it, it's so much different than the, than the typical diuretics that we've talked about so far, I mean, not SGLT, but, but thiazides and loops that get secreted, they get secreted in the proximal tubule and then they float downstream and have their effect inside on the luminal side where, as this is a steroid hormone, steroids go, they, they get into the cell, they get to a receptor and then they go and affect RNA and synthesis. So it, it isn't dependent upon GFR and it's not dependent upon filtration. It's not dependent upon protein binding or competing with other organic acids, which happens in renal failure with the with the loops and the thiazides. So it goes in the cell, it gets the gets the nucleus, and it affects RNA production. And so, what does aldosterone do? It aldosterone has turns on the cell to make more sodium ENAC channels and K and and, K, and potassium channels and uh, sodium potassium ATPA. So it just ramps up the system. So what does L, what does uh, spironolactone do? It basically blocks that. But the importance of that is that it's not like Lasix floats downstream and you start peeing. If if you give spironolactone, what are you doing? You're waiting for the the channels that are there because you're not going to make that many new channels. The channels that are there and the sodium potassium ATPases to kind of go away, and that doesn't happen right away. So spironolactone isn't going to work right away, and uh, aldosterone is not going to work right away. So you have to be – it has a very different effect, but uh, I find it's a really effective drug. I like it a lot. You know, yesterday, Anna talked about this, the side effects of the combination of, of thiazides and loops giving hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis. And that's because so commonly, what do we do? We give 
Lasix and metolazone or Lasix and some long-acting thiazide. And that's not an insignificant side effect. But, you know, what I've been doing more of, I like to do is either add uh, spironolactone or use it as my second drug. And because what is happening is all this, you know, volume depletion and distal sodium delivery just turns on that whole green and angiotensin system. And it's the aldosterone that really makes, forces the alkalosis and the hypokalemia. And if you can block that, and it's easily blocked, I found that you don't really have to worry about the potassium. You don't have to worry about um, the metabolic alkalosis. And I, I think it's an underutilized drug for diuresis. What else? Roger, when I when I was at Indiana University, I would round with um, Rajiv Agarwal is there, who obviously was one of the authors on the Fidelio study. And he, you could always tell when he covered for the weekend because you'd come back on service and everyone would be on aldactone. And if like primary teams were trying to diurese somebody and they'd call and be like, you know, I just, we, we need, we need to add a diuretic. And he'd be like, they're already on a diuretic. They're on spironolactone. So mad. You know, it is, I'm not, it, it is, it's kind of like, yeah. uh, you know, our SGL2 two inhibitors are they are they really are they endocrine drugs or are they renal and cardiac drugs? You know they're probably renal and cardiac drugs. And when when cardiac when cardiologists put their patients on aldactone, you know they're not thinking of it as a diuretic, thinking of it as cardioprotective drug because there's this whole business of of aldosterone causing mineral corticoid receptors in the heart and leading to fibrosis. By the way, something I don't understand why that should happen. Aldosterone is an extremely important hormone for us to have survived and to get out of the oceans. Although I was looking this up mm-hmm. and I found out that evolutionarily about, <laughs> you know, I thought I went back far enough to, at the 14th century, but I forgot. <laughs> 350 billion years ago, they felt, fa- yeah, that's a little bit more. 350 billion years ago, there was, th- th- there was fish that had aldosterone before they left the ocean. And I always thought that, that aldosterone was all about leaving the ocean and going into the, you know, being being able to preserve salt and sodium and volume when you're in a non-rich sodium environment. So uh, it may have had a original function that was very, di- very different than that. But So we're using it with two. Uh, how many people have used a loop diuretic, a thiazide diuretic, and a mineral cord to cord receptor, all three of them together? Yeah, most of the audience here. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. has anybody added uh, acetazolamide to that? So you're basically hitting all four parts of the nephron. That's remarkable. And I think that we talk about breaking. I want to just say two words about breaking. Breaking is, we all know what it is, two but words. I think that nephrologists understand it because it's the very, but I don't know that the rest that other people really do. And so, but the idea, you know, you, you don't diarese forever. If you diarese forever, you, we would all just disappear and die. So at some point what diuretics do, of course, I know, don't, don't be insulted, is get you to a, a lower total body sodium state where then you're in steady state and what comes in comes out and, uh, and breaking is because you've got other parts of the nephron. And I wonder if there's any way that we can block absolutely everything. Now we're hitting the proximal tubule, the loop, the distal tubule, and even further with aldactone by giving all four. Is there any way that we could actually create salt wasting? And I don't think so. I think the kidney is so good that, you know, in the end, there's no way that we'll ever be able to pharmacologically create salt wasting. Um, because, I mean, the, the, the essence of life is being able to maintain our volume and maintain our sodium balance. So well, I'm, inter- I'm glad to see people have used all four. I think that's remarkable. I haven't done it. So I thought I was going to be a the pioneer, but clearly I'm behind the... <laughs> 
But as no, people, the, the, but, you know, our audience is always smarter than us anyway. Has anybody had that patient come into clinic that's on 100 milligrams of spironolactone a couple times a day for feminization or for acne? Yes, yes. And all you want to do is you're like, you're terrified. You got to check that potassium and it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, they're fine. Well, I have a question about that because it's remarkable and I and I don't know what everybody's practice is, but it's really thinking and reflecting on what you're saying, Roger, like if aldosterone really is, it has such a different mechanism of action. And especially in patients who have cirrhosis, when they come in with AKI and, you know, the first thing that happens is everything is stopped, like spironolactone yes, is stopped. Yes, like, yes. should we be doing that? Like, do we think that spironolactone is the one that's causing the AKI? There's so many other reasons. It's and I just, I kind of, I'm like inclined to say, no, we shouldn't be stopping aldosterone. Uh, you but know, it depends on the volume status of each patient. I think we should yes. be less kind of uh, reflex, yeah. Uh, yeah. more selective. But Joel, your question uh is it perhaps because most of these patients have preserved kidney yeah, function? No, that, I think yeah, that's exactly sure, what's yeah. going on, but it is startling to see yeah, we're yeah, so yeah. used to these doses. tiny little doses in heart failure and cirrhosis, or not so much cirrhosis, but yeah. heart failure and in kidney disease to see how much aldosterone, spironolactone, that uh, healthy people can tolerate. Yeah. And and what we consider a side effect is considered their desired effect. It's pretty I, amazing. I, I have done that. I took minoxidil. For, so I was already on Natalol for migraines, and then I took minoxidil for is it four, would it be four milligrams a day? And then my dermatologist for, you know, for hair, whatever, put me on a hundred milligrams twice a day. And let me tell you, I swallowed that pill with trepidation. She's like, you will be fine. (laughs) No, I had like potato chips by the bedside, you know, like, yeah, here I am walking around. Uh, I got a question for one. Before your question, I want to comment about you said, uh, you were talking about this long acting effect. And I have learned to respect that later in my career. Uh, you know, you, you have somebody on, on a spironolactone, it takes many days to go away. I have seen patients that have this refractory hyperkalemia and acidosis, many in the hospital, and they're still, we're still pushing it. It's really, really, and it's a, it's a word of caution, too. You have to, as good as it is, it's a very long-acting. I cannot think of any other direct. Perhaps metolazone is also a very long-acting one. Those are the two. Yeah, but that's 24, even 48 hours. But I think you're, yeah. Yeah, but if you have CKD or metolazone. It can last a while, yeah. Which is a, which always cracks me up when people give it BID. But Correct. But I have a question for Juan, Juan Carlos. Um, in liver failure, is what is, is there, a, is there a dose response curve or what is your, he's our liver, he's our hepato guy, definitely. Yeah. If you don't know, he's, he's Dr. Liver. Dr. He's a pat. He's, he's Doctor Paterino. He's um, Is there? Is there? A, I mean, if you're doing it for cirrhosis, would you, what dose would you start at, and what would dose would you go up to? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I have to be honest. I, I I have experience in the context of AKI and cirrhosis. You know, the spironolactone as a diuretic for refractory ascites. Most of those patients are ambulatory. I don't have a particular you know, crazy experience with those patients. But they arrive to the hospital, they're already 100 milligrams of spironolactone. That's a very common dose. And there's all literature that you will titrate your dose based on the urine sodium and urine potassium. I remember those old papers. I personally don't do that anymore because the patients arrive already with that prescription. I I don't make those calls. But it it appears to be sort of a dose-dependent effect. I, uh, so we're, we're going to move on, but I, I have two fun facts about, um, about this topic. One is Geller syndrome. Geller syndrome is a gain of function mutation, uh, autosomal dominant, very, very rare. It's, it's my bucket list. It's my holy grail. I know I'll never see one, but uh, it's a gain of function of the aldosterone receptor so that progesterone 
which is normally an antagonist, now becomes an agonist. So women often develop hypertension, especially during pregnancy, their blood pressure goes up. So it's more common in women and certainly shows up in pregnancy. The interesting thing though, is that spironolactone, which is normally an antagonist, becomes an agonist with Geller syndrome. So you'll never see it to, to, to know that, but I mean, maybe you will, but I hope you don't miss it, <laughs> my holy grail. But I, I thought that was really interesting that everything becomes an, an agonist and there really is no antagonist. The other is that trans women that take a lot of spironolactone, uh, they do it for hair and breast and ba basically it's anti-androgen effect. They, take, they can take so much spironolactone that they get a little bit volume depleted and hypotensive. So what do they do to counteract it? This is brilliant. I don't know who ever thought of this. They eat licorice. Uh, yeah, they eat licorice. Or Malort. Just drink <laughs> every day, drink Malort. And I mentioned, you know, how that works earlier. And I think that's just brilliant. Of course, it can't be Twizzlers. It has to be the real licorice with the glycerolytic acid or whatever. Um, and, uh, and it counteracts so that now what they're doing is they're blocking, they may be blocking all their... Um, they're all, they're aldosterone, but um, they are also now supplying cortisol uh, to the that no longer gets converted to inactive cortisone, and cortisol uh, stimulates the mineral corticoid receptor so that they're not they're not basically mineral corticoid uh, deficient. So I'll quit there. That's wow, that's awesome, cool. that's awesome one for the uh, the fifth pick. We have Josh, Josh Waitsman. What, what do you got? Vaptans, sure. amelaride, uh, manitol, instead of announcing my pick. Verbally, I'm going to show my pick. Oh. Right there. I didn't realize you were a sports fan. Maybe I should be too. Is that a Bears jersey? It is a Bears jersey, yeah. It was a Bears jersey. I wanted to point out that was a Bears jersey. I'm a sports fan and I'll root for a Milleride every time a Milleride's on a team. <laughs> um, so with the fifth pick, I'm going to choose Probably the Milleride. And, and Josh has been trying to talk about Milleride for two years. So that, I that's think kind of really the running good. joke. Sorry, we'll let you finish. Out of time. If I had gone earlier, I would have told. And we already interrupted him yet again. Should we, should we move on, Joel? Should we just move on? <laughs> so, so the running joke for folks who are not listening to the podcast is that every time I get a chance to talk about a Milleride, I'm really excited, and we always move on to the end of the episode. Then, <laughs> yeah, so this has been a running theme. Uh, but now I finally get to talk about it, which I'm so excited to do. So Milleride was first I first discovered. I'm not going to quite as far back as Roger, the 350 <laughs> billion years ago. Uh, 15th Milleride, century. <laughs> Milleride first discovered in the mid-60s by Merck, uh, and they were looking for anti-mineralic corticoid agents after they'd done all of this cow killing uh, and adrenal harvesting. Uh, and so what they would do is they would take rats, remove their adrenal glands, and then give them aldosterone back. And they would then try different agents to see what reduced, uh, sorry, what enhanced urinary sodium excretion and reduced urinary potassium excretion. So once you get past the adrenalectomizing, reasonably easy screening uh, and led them to amelaride, which is now a widely used medicine and scaffold for other medicines. So we all know amelaride works in the distal tubule where it blocks the epithelial sodium channel. And this was actually determined in my favorite model system the toad bladder, uh, <laughs> where the, the advantages of that system for this is that there are tons of tight junctions between the cells, which makes it really easy to, to have a difference between one side of the epithelium and the other when you're recording or measuring sodium concentrations. And they have tons of ENAC expression there too. So it's really the ideal system to be studying ENAC and things that affect ENAC activity. And gave rise to the phrase tighter than a toad's bladder. Gave rise the to the common phrase of tighter than a toad's bladder. Yep. <laughs> the commonly used phrase. 
Um, <laughs> and so amylaride blocks the ENAC channel, which prevents sodium entry, which prevents potassium loss through ROMK. But amylaride actually has affinity for lots of other sodium and cation transporters. Uh, in particular, the, the sodium proton antiporter, NHE1, um, and actually can work almost like an antibiotic for certain kinds of infection. If, if you remember back to learning about how bacteria turn their flagella to move in places, they're actually powered by proton gradients. And amylaride or amylaride derivatives can actually block those proton gradient trafficking channels uh, or transporters to allow for inhibition of bacterial or microbacterial transport. Do we see this in vivo? Do we conceive antibiotic properties? So these are like still in vitro and cell culture and animal studies, but people use amylaride as a scaffold for developing like different kinds of new anti-tuberculosis agents. What? Nice. So that's so cool. We we've also talked about different. I think we know different clinical uses of amylaride. In particular, Little syndrome, rare genetic thing that we see with hyperactive ENAC uh, and hypomagnesemia. It being the only diuretic that actually helps with hypomagnesemia. Spare maybe SGLT2 inhibitors. But I'm actually going to take amylaride outside the kidney and go somewhere else. Uh, in particular, I'm going to go to the tongue of rodents, rats and gerbils does. and mice, the very common <laughs> yeah, system yeah, yeah. that we all take care right, of. Bobby, right, um, yes. and, <laughs> Our patient, Bobby. And what's neat about the system is you can actually put sodium on the tongue of the rodent and record from the nerve that goes back from the tongue to the brain. And you see increases in signal when you put sodium on the tongue. And that's your like, I'm tasting a salty food uh, signal. And if you put a milleride on the tongue of like a gerbil, that <laughs> signal drops dramatically. And so gerbils actually use ENAC to taste salt, which I thought was really cool. But Very but cool. Humans so, don't? Humans don't do this, weirdly. But this is like in rodents. If you like mouthwash with a milleride, they no longer taste salt and they eat lots more salty food because they're like not sensitized to salt anymore. So Roger yesterday in our our help patients eat less sodium pre-course, Roger was like, why, how hard can this be? Can't there just be a channel that we could just turn off or turn on or turn off or whatever mm. in people's mouths that they could just taste things being more salty? I would also like to co-promote to my announcement of Dr. Waitsman's amylaride mouthwash. Which I'll be <laughs> or a gerbil tongue transplant. All the disclosures. Yeah. <laughs> that was before the talk. I am now simultaneously launching a cross promotion. Now the audience is wishing we also didn't get to a Milleride today. <laughs> I'm really tired. Can we pick this back up tomorrow? Um, the other thing that the system was useful for was actually, in addition to detecting sodium on the rodent tongue, it actually helps detect lithium on the rodent tongue as well. So if you put lithium onto the tongue of a gerbil or rat uh, that's been treated with amylaride, it doesn't taste the lithium either, and it'll take lots more lithium, which is apparently not so tasty for, for rats and gerbils. So that was going to bring me to the last major use of amylaride which, in nephrology, which is the prevention or treatment of DI. And I think the thought process for this makes sense. If, if lithium gets into the cell through ENAC, uh, then blocking ENAC with amylaride or, or similar agent would reduce the amount of lithium toxicity you see in the distal tubule. And that's borne out in mouse models. Mice with an ENAC knockout don't develop lithium-induced DI. And even before we had that mouse knockout information, we actually had these intense clinical studies where you'd take nine people, shove them in a metabolic lab, and just monitor everything about them for like two weeks straight. Uh, and so 
Dan Bhatia at Northwestern, who, who is a living mentor who I've actually met, uh, as opposed to Anna's one that she's connecting with by ESP, um, <laughs> actually gave patients with nephrogenic DI by lithium, gave them amiloride, and saw a decreased urine output and increased urine concentrating ability. And that case series of nine cases is really the evidence base we have oh that God. we base the use of amiloride on. But, so can I ask a question since you've yeah. done the literature on this? So, Because I guess I ask this all the time. Amiloride helps to prevent nephrogenic DI, but the lithium toxicity. But if someone who already has advanced CKD, like, d- does it really help? Yeah, I, I think that's where we all end up seeing the patient. We don't see them before they develop DI. We see them because... They've already developed DI. Otherwise, we get lots of pre-consults for everything. And so whenever I've used this, I've kind of been underwhelmed by like the effectiveness in amiloride. I don't see 50% reductions in urine output. And that's because this ends up being a lot more complicated. We, we talked a little bit about aquaporin transcription and translation. And lithium itself actually can lead to downregulation of aquaporin transcription and translation. But you know what increases that, Josh? Tell me. Thanks. <laughs> Actually, um, there's been some cool case report or ca- like case series um, published about using them in conjunction. So thiazides and amiloride, particularly in pediatric patients, and apparently it's quite effective. And and I think it's hard to imagine that amiloride could fix all of that stuff on its own. Um, but there's another, again, small 11 patients this time study that shows amiloride improves responsiveness to DDAVP. And so perhaps it takes your purely nephrogenic DI into a nephrogenic plus central place that you could give DDAVP to. And, and that's something I've never done is the combo of amiloride and DDAVP. I'm not recommending people start doing this widely, um, but I think it's something to think about that could be useful uh, in taking care of these patients who have just this disabling effect. Yeah, but so chlorphalladone, cool. I think, in amiloride is really useful. <laughs> not really. No, I'm not just it saying that. Cool. I know. Que- question, but, Josh. So... How much different is uh, triamterene? You know, clinically, ah. clinically, we see them as equal, yet every bench paper that I've come across talks about amiloride and not triamterene. Is there any reason for that? I, I don't have a good reason for that. I, I didn't go as deep on triamterene as the other, as amiloride, the kind of the, the king of the class. Um, do other folks have, have thoughts on, on triamterene at all? It's a great question. I have no idea. I, I, I don't know if it's on... I don't know if you can. Pres- it's fair. I don't know if it's on formulary. Is you anybody in the audience ever prescribed? Yeah, no, but has anyone yeah. ever prescribed triamterene alone? Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it's available. Somebody, yeah. Oh. oh, thank you. We and I don't think amiloride is cheap. Yeah. So go ahead. You were. So uh, so I thought we see patients on lithium. I see a lot of patients on lithium. And, you know, the first thing I ask them is, you know, do you get up, you know, try to figure out their polyuria. And the, the best way I always ask is their nocturia history. And some of them is disastrous. And some of them don't have any problem at all, which is very interesting. So is, I wonder why some people are so, some people get the DI and some people don't get nephrogenic DI from it. That's part one. Part two is, to my question is that I, there's, I think there's some, so some patients can get off it clearly and some patients can't get off it and they've got a creatinine of one four and it's just their lives are disastrous without it. And we'll just assume that they're going to stay on it. There's some evidence in the rat data where if you give a milliride independent of what it does for water balance, that it decreases CKD. And I wonder if there isn't a role, even if for a patient 
who has lithium-induced CKD and is going to stay on it, just put them on amelioride. It doesn't, the lithium doesn't get in the cell and maybe there's going to be less CKD. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I have a couple of patients like this. So, and and I, I keep them on it. And the patient that I saw basically was looking for another opinion because their nephrologist said, either get off lithium or I'm not going to see you because I don't want to be responsible for this. And I'm like, hmm. no, absolutely not. Like, amylaride, and, and I, I do have Seems them on amylaride because I do think that a know. lot of it is dose-dependent and how long the patient has been on it because you get this, con you know, continual reabsorption of, of the lithium because it's so similar to the sodium, as you mentioned. Yeah. So um, I definitely am a believer in that, and the patients are really stable. And Yeah, yeah. lithium can be a life-changing drug yeah. for people. Yeah. It really is a powerful yeah. I have two comments on uh, on this. I, I agree. Lithium can be life changing. First of all, when I'm probing for nephrogenic DI, not only do I ask about nocturia, I ask if they drink during the night because most people actually get up, men and women get up at least once during the night and some more. Um, I get up at least once during the night and that's when I take my thyroid hormone um, because my stomach's empty and I, then I can have my coffee right away. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> most people get up during the night. So I ask, when you get up to urinate, do you also drink fluid? Because that is a sign that you may have hypernatremia and people who have nephrogenic DI are very thirsty and may drink during the night. They may drink multiple times during the night to get through. And then you also know that it's not going to be safe to have them, say, do an overnight fast of water um, before you check their serum sodium in the morning. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, you know what, that I have joked about potassium being promiscuous. <laughs> but lithium in the podcast, but lithium is too. And remember that lithium lines up with sodium in the periodic table and it can enter every sodium transporter, not just ENAC. And so although amylaride could potentially help mitigate nephrogenic DI in someone who's still on lithium, it doesn't help with all the other transporters where lithium could still theoretically get into cells and cause havoc. So. I'd like to point out that it was the clap that used the word promiscuous. <laughs> I would also like to point out that Melanie says Just things say that it. are not vaguely sexual as well, <laughs> most of the time. Well, and I think it's I think one of the important things about the reason what we use amylaride, and it's relevant to this discussion about the diuretic draft, is that it's important that it's a very ineffective diuretic because you don't want to get patients volume depleted because then they'll retain a lot of, of lithium. And so one of the advantages of amylaride is how bad it is. <laughs> it's so bad it's good that's what we're going and on for. that note melanie our worst we're bowler done. yeah so uh, that's, a, that's a really practical point because yeah. you know dr thiazide down there <laughs> have we heard enough about that already i mean please but i mean thiazides are really you know they're very good for they for nephrogenic di but they're they can be disastrous with lithium if you get volume depleted because then your lithium levels just shoot up because you'll it's handled just like sodium so so it's a combination i really don't like to use but Joel's point, it's not the same drug, so. Yeah. Okay, Amy, you got the, the next pick of the draft. So it's a little bit slim picking. It is pretty slim. <laughs> yeah, but you, if you've listened to the podcast, you guys know I love acetazolamide. I just love it. So I'll explain <laughs> why. So I know it's not a, like the most effective diuretic when you're thinking about heart failure and things like that, but you can use it for so many different things, right? Carbonic anhydrase is in pretty much all your cells, including red blood cells. We use it for glaucoma. We use it for idiopathic... 
Well, what do we call it now? Super, pseudotumor cerebri. It's got like a new name Idiopathic now. Idiopathic intracranial yeah, hypertension. Some, some like weird new name. So. <laughs> and, you know, I I really love that it has all these like weird, like niche little uses outside of nephrology. In terms of a diuretic, though, and also just a side note, I know we've been talking a lot about nephrogenic DI, but also there's a rat study that looked at acetazolamide and lithium-induced nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, and not just affecting aquaporin, but actually also reducing the concentration of lithium inside of cells. So it actually may help to ameliorate some of the nephrotoxicity associated with lithium uh, CKD. So at least in mice. Um, but in terms of like diuresis, because, you know, when we're thinking about using a lot of these diuretics, we're thinking about it in the context of heart failure, right? And so I really... I since kind of doing this podcast and and talking to you guys, I've been the you know I'm glad to see a lot of us have done like the sequential nephron blockade. But I think the trick is is to figure out when do you add the second, third, and fourth line agent, right? So like you know do you when you add the, the thigh side, that's typically the second line agent, or should that be the second line agent? You know, and so I've been more liberal about adding spironolactone in patients if they're getting potassium replacement. I tend to just start it maybe on day two, right? So like why? you know, just just go ahead and go start that. And so I start to notice too, once they start to get a little bit alkalotic and hypochloremia, because the hypochloremia also helps to lead to some diuretic resistance, right? And a lot of times they have, a little, I'm getting consulted also because they have a degree of CKD or a degree of AKI. The way that you would fix this is to give KCL. A lot of times patients or the heart team is concerned about giving potassium, right? So even though you try to reassure them, they still might not listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and so I like to pull out amylaride a little, or I'm sorry, acetazolamide a little bit earlier. You know, once I see that bicarb kind of drift up into the low 30s, once they hit 30, I know they're going to need more diuretic. Or if I'm thinking about adding a thiazide, they're already like 28, 29, 30, then why not add maybe add the thiazide with acetazolamide, right? I know I'm not going to get a huge natriuretic effect from it, but at least I can make all the other diuretics that they're on more effective. Well, I don't know. You, you may, we have um, data for this. So in the AdWord trial, they they added IV acetazolamide to Lasix's uh, double randomized uh, placebo controlled, and um, it was like 500 patients in each arm, and they had two endpoints: the uh, how much diuresis, so uh, decongestion, and then uh, cardiac like cardiovascular outcomes. And uh, even though in the cardiovascular outcomes they didn't see a benefit w- with adding IV acetazolamide to IV Lasix, they did in actually the diuresis. So I think it really, it's not, a, I think you have a basis for this to yeah. add it as a, as another yeah. agent. And I know a lot of people critique Advor, right? Because it was loops plus nothing and loops plus acetazolamide, yeah. right? But I wonder, and you know, when I looked at the study, they didn't really comment on the degree of hypochloremia or metabolic alkalosis in these patients. And I would have really, you know, at least been, been interested to see if that's part of the reason why the diuretic, they, they got more volume off in the treatment arm. So, but that's about acetazolamide. So I love it for that reason. And then just like a little fun thing. So, you know, it's interesting that we've all been talking that these diuretics also have like an antimicrobial effect, right? So we talked about loops with syphilis. We talked about, you talked about amylaride with the flagella, that's right. And so, you know, I talked about on the podcast about um, H. pylori, right? And so, you know, H. pylori lives in the gut and the H. pylori organism actually has carbonic anhydrase inhibitors on it to make the environment around it a little bit more basic so that way it can live. And so when you give acetazolamide in these patients, I mean, these are like big doses, like a thousand milligrams a day, they actually cured um, people's H. pylori. And it's because they inhibited the carbonic anhydrase in the H. pylori. And so they all died from the acidic environment. But it's actually been found, interestingly, in mice models to be actually more effective against VRE 
compared to Lanese lid. So it is actually a really, if you think about it, pretty strong antimicrobial agent. No one's getting glaucoma on your watch. Yeah, I'm just saying. So if you have someone maybe with a line who also has a VRE infection, Acetazolamide. Do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, Amy, not I want to help you with your case, but um, <laughs> you know this idea of being a weak diuretic. I think we talked about it on the podcast once too. And I took acetazolamide before going to Cusco uh, to yeah, prevent high altitude yeah. sickness. Another versi- more of the versatility of the drug. And I was peeing all day long. So <laughs> I'm not sure if it's really a weak, this reputation of being a weak diuretic. <laughs> I think it's the context of the patients having yeah. a disease state that makes it. Not so effective, but I was quite surprised. I had the the exact same experience. I was like, oh, this is a weak diuretic. I couldn't believe how powerful (laughs) it was. Yeah. What's the altitude? You were like up in the mountain. What's the altitude you were at? Uh, Cusco is uh, is about 4,000 meters. So anybody in feet? 12,000. Four times three. That was rough. Yeah. No, but I, I find just, you know, going up, you'll have an antidiuresis too. So just going up that high, you would tend to diurese less. And so uh, no, no, no. Well, the fact that still, it worked is even more, is even stresses you start it. taking it, I would start taking it before, before trouble. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to take it a couple days <laughs> before you get to, to <laughs> yeah. for it to be yeah. effective, you have to take so, a couple days. And you were in like hiking gear, peeing your brains out, right? Mm-hmm. Like crampons and stuff? Not crampons. It was just a hike up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I went to Everest Base Camp, which is 18.5. And that's... That's Depending on, on the audience, he's more and less honest about where um, he went on Everest. I he always, says he went to Everest. I always say that I went to the bottom of Everest. <laughs> so <laughs> so let, me, I mean, let me ask, how many, since Advor came out, how many of you guys are using acetazolamide as your second line diuretic? Second line. Jeez, no. What about as a third line? Mm, okay. Are we counting aldactone? Sure. <laughs> but you know, one thing, no, I mean, curious. and I know you mentioned about the um, glaucoma, but I've actually seen a patient that it, they were supposed to take acetazolamide only for a short amount of time. And then they ended up just taking it forever. I don't know how they got a refill. And they were really acidotic. Like they gave it with a bicarb of 12, 14. So it's not like it's all, you know, it's not totally benign. Yeah. So this patient had a little bit of CKD. So maybe this is related too. But uh, it also, for all of you that are using it for altitude sickness, it does make you, it predispose you to sunburns. So. Oh, and if you're up in Cusco, yeah, you want to so, be careful. So who in the audience has taken it themselves? Few people, very few. So, who who knows the weirdest side effect? Bill does. Bill, what is I it? I know this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah so the, it's exactly right, and it totally comes as a surprise. We don't tell patients this because there's other drugs that have carbonic anhydrase inhibition, you know, uh, Topamax, right. etc. And so I took it going to Colorado one time because I get kind of headaches and kind of sick when I go up in the mountain to ski. And I get up there and I, I get a beer and it tastes absolutely flat. It tastes like there is, like I'm drinking water and there's nothing more disgusting than a fl- completely flat beer. And I had no idea what was going on. Then I had a Coke and the same thing. Well, there's something about carbonic anhydrase in the tongue that gives you the sensation of carbonation and everything tastes flat. And it and it's that's not a good thing when you're on vacation to have, you know, you want to have a beer after you ski. So, JC, did you have, did you have the same effect? Nope. I didn't. <laughs> No, I mean no. I'm serious. I didn't. I just pee like crazy, but no, no change in my taste. <laughs> Joel, did you have any carbonated? Yeah, I, could, I couldn't stand beer. It was undrinkable. Undrinkable. So yeah. Okay. Well, so JC, effect. you're a you, you have a uh, you have a gerbil it. tongue. <laughs> a ger- and I bet your urine doesn't <laughs> smell with asparagus either. JC, I bet your urine doesn't smell with asparagus either. What was that? The face tingling. Yeah. The, yeah. That's another one. Like your whole face just. Tingles. It's the weird. It feels like someone took the fizz from the soda and put it on your skin. 
So yeah. weird. Yeah. Paresthesias. Yeah. We all, are we, uh, have we put, uh, are we done? Uh, Acetazolamide. We're done with Acetazolamide. JC. Short and sweet. JC. All right. My turn. Um, so in sports drafts, your teams are supposed to pick up players are going to be sort of, uh, you know, clutch players, game changers, right? So I picked Vaptons because you're supposed to be good, JC. Oh, come on. <laughs> Vaptons are game changers. When they, <laughs> and, uh, when they came out, they were game changers. So this is 2005 uh, when I was uh, right out of fellowship, starting my first job as a junior faculty. And, you know, I had all these memories of dealing with patients with SIDH as a, as a fellow and as a resident. Complete frustration. We could not fix them. The students were just lagging low the entire hospital stay. You would try furosemide, furosemide saline, salt tablet, all kinds of games, and very, very uh, little results. So I came to a, my first faculty position in December of 05 was the first Vapton approved. Conivapton is a, is not just a V2 receptor antagonist, it's a V2, V1 intravenous. Uh, brand name yeah. was Vaprosol at that time. So it came out. So I was like, wow, this is, sounds exciting. You have a drug that blocks the receptors, exactly the mechanism for SIDH. So, you know, I was very junior, very gone. Oh, I'm going to use it. I'm waiting for my first patient. So... I got consulted on a patient, was a trans kidney transplant patient, come to the hospital, based on creatinine 1.7-ish, became with an infection. It was a cavitary endocardiosis, right? So you know it's that's already, and it was hyponatremia. Yeah. So that speaks like the classic pulmonary cause of SIDH. But the book says, you know, you have to have normal kidney function. And I'm like, screw this. I don't buy this criteria. <laughs> this guy has a cavitary endocardiosis. Two weeks ago, sodium was 140, now it's 120. AKI doesn't do that just because this guy's infected. So I treated this guy with conivaptin, and the sodium improved very nicely from 121, 124, 127. Success story, boom. And then uh, a few days later, we get a, another console. This was in the ICU. A lady in the ICU with uh, persistent hyponatremia, bronchiectasis was the predisposing factor. So prescribed this drug, and I got a call the next day by my friend Kristen Hyland. He's a pulmonologist at MUSC at the time. She's an intensivist, very smart, super nice lady. Uh, she calls me and she said, Juan Carlos, what is this magic drug you got going on? <laughs> I have never seen anything so exquisite, so, you know, works so smoothly and I got my patient out of the ICU. I love it. I'm going to get all my patients out of the ICU. <laughs> so I was like, Helps yeah, right? It's, 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 yeah, it's my, I'm like, it's my deal toy. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, then a few years later, uh, Tolvapton was the first oral one approved. I don't know why. I think it's Merck. I don't know what the company is. It took a long uh, more uh, time for them to to get it in the market. And we started using it. Was a, it was much better because the intravenous conivaptin not only wasn't a pure Antagonist, but also require ICU because of IV. Now we have an oral and agent. One activity too, which is a little makes you a little nervous. Right? It, it makes you nervous with GI yeah. bleeders and all that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, we got the oral uh, tolvaptin and we started using it. Uh, as you know, it's, it's, it was approved originally for heart failure, hyponatremia, SIDH, and and cirrhosis, right? right? yeah. which later on that was disputed yeah. for reasons that I don't personally agree, but. But anyway, so the it was starting to be used, and the thing that happened over uh, very quickly is people started recognizing 
that it would correct the sodium very, very well in SIDH, perhaps too fast. I was going to say, yeah. Very so well there was a lot of, of it was a lot of uh, concern. Yeah, I don't like it. It's just the sodium spikes up. I get in panic mode. I don't want to use it. Uh, and we actually looked into that. We have a couple of studies we try to determine what uh, who are those patients who are likely to respond in that way. And although the data wasn't like we don't have like a recipe, but the signal seems to be those who have a sodium less than 120. And interestingly, those with a very low BUN and very low creatinine, which is to me, if so you I have a sodium 120, BUN is very low, you're creatinine, you probably have a rip-roaring SIDH. Yeah. You got to be careful with those guys and try to start with a lower dose. I have always been fighting with pharmacy because they don't let you cut the table in four pieces because I want to give only 3.75 or at least no more than 7.5 milligrams, but the approved dose is 15 milligrams. So you have to go by that and it's a problem. So, but I think if you recognize that, and I just want to make sure that everybody's clear that this overcorrection or rapid correction is extremely unusual in heart failure. It just yes. doesn't happen. It is just an SIDH phenomenon. Uh, but I still love it. And it's just, just one of, we nephrologists, we like mechanisms. This is a, something that came out, attacks the mechanism of action, works. You can watch the uterus to go from 600 to 100 in the course of three hours. That's magic. So I, I think that's, uh, that's why Vaptons to me were game changers. And of course, a few years ago, we got this brand new indication for a genetic condition, yeah. and we, this is the first ever medication with an with with a genetic condition that autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Yeah. So that's remarkable too. So for that reason, I'm making a case for Baptins. So you know, I call BS on the diuretic thing, but the the, the but well, okay. So, <laughs> well, so so but the PK see, this is a diuretic theme. Is it aquaretic? But the PKD thing is like that's. I mean that's so huge for so many people it is so nice to be able to offer people something and so can i ask because i am kind of a late adopter of tolvaptan you know i always felt like you know i can treat the hyponatremia i never needed tolvaptan right it was never the board answer right and so i just it's true. like one i can't get it approved for my patients for for hardly half of them right and so, so i was like well i'm never going to use it and you know i've started to use it more in heart failure and i've actually started to use it a little bit more in sidh just every once in a while but I just want your kind of your opinion. You touched on it briefly about tolvaptin in cirrhotic patients. You know, especially it has this yeah. big black box warning. It's you know, as a young nephrologist, I'm not going to just go ahead and prescribe yeah. a medication that has a black box warning to patients with cirrhosis. But I would get consulted in the patient in the hospital. It'll be a liver failure patient, and the liver team would say, "Can we give tolvaptan?" And I I've done it a couple times now, lower doses, and I feel more comfortable with yeah. it now. But you know, I think I. I'd like just like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, as a nephrologist with gray hair, not as young, I use it. I use it. I think it's, as most people probably in the room know, the reason why the indication for cirrhosis was removed, it was because the liver toxicity was seen in the PKD trials that utilize higher doses, much higher doses of tolvaptin. So for that reason, the drug company and the FDA agreed to remove the indication. Now, we are consulted uh, at auction. We have a lot of liver transplant uh, activity there. So often patients have a sodium of 122 and they are about to get a liver. And you know the risk of rapid correction in the operating room is extremely high. 
So we often use Tovato for a couple of days. This is a patient going to get a liver in three days. You're worried about liver toxicity, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, and we bump the sodium a little bit, and it, it's fairly effective. It's not as effective, I would say, as it is in SIDH or even heart failure. I often have to go all the way to 60 milligrams and keep pushing it uh, to see the effect. But I personally don't think it should be uh, labeled as a contraindicator. You got to be careful, yes, right? But not as a contraindication in my, in my view. Yeah, it's ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, you've got uh, the, the the PKD study taking 90 to 120 milligrams every day, and we're worrying about 15 milligrams once or twice. It's absolutely absurd. But you do get pullback. I have no concern about giving a few doses. I, I don't know how comfortable I'd be sending somebody home on it per se, but I think it's ridiculous. And I think it's it's just, it's way overkill. There There is, I agree with I agree with JC. I mean, the beauty of, you know, as a nephrologist, you know, you envision this uh, ADH inappropriately, you know, stimulating this receptor, and then you go and you just block it, and suddenly the urine becomes clean and it pours out. It's just, there's something just so nice about it. I love urea, but it's not the same thing. You know, it's not the same thing. And uh, the only unfortunate thing, it's so hard to get approved. I saw many people shaking their heads when they, and that's the problem. It's just, it's it's a beautiful drug, but it's very hard to get approved. So we end up doing some of the other very, very less exciting things to me than using what's exact, you're exactly targeting the disease. As far as heart failure goes, I mean, I think the big, and liver failure, you remember, I think JC mentioned in the original SALT1 and SALT2 trials, a third of the patients had heart failure and a third of the patients had cirrhosis and it worked just fine, but you need much higher doses because those patients are so pre-renal, they're just the delivery so low. On the, where on the other hand, you, in SIDH, your GFRs are high, which is why I find very interesting about your finding with the with the uh, with the low creatinine, they have high GFRs, and their distal delivery is just fine. And so you're going to have a much much a robust effect of the of the tolvaptan. And you're going to need a much higher dose in heart failure because you know everything's being reabsorbed proximally already. So you're not. It takes a lot more. JC, have you ever used ninety milligrams? Ninety oh, milligrams? No. I for hyponatremia? No, no. But no, you use sixty for PKD. You've used it for six for sixty for hyponatremia for cirrhosis and heart failure. I've gone as high as sixty. Probably. Yeah, and I think people don't realize that it starts at fifteen. Now, if you've ever seen the pill, I, he brought up a very practical point. Fifteen is probably too much for your average SIDH patient with a good creatinine. So traditionally, we start at seven point five. Well, if you've ever seen a tolvaptan tablet, it's this tiny little triangle. I mean, they're really itty bitty. I mean, it's like a third of a tic tac or something. And you cut that in half to get seven and a half. And then you want you know you cut it again because once we had once had a patient that over corrected at seven and a half, so we cut it to three point seven five. It's like a it's like a panko uh, breadcrumb. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, I, how do you possibly you monitor tell the patient- that? Lick this. <laughs> <laughs> and so at the time, I, I was on service with my fellow, and we had one patient that didn't respond to 30. I hadn't really given, gone to 60 yet. But we had one patient that didn't respond to 30 and one patient that over-responded to 7.5. So I had to write it up in for the uh, Renal Fellows Network, and we called it a tale of two tolvaptans. Uh-huh. And basically, you know, pl- with a play on words, the tale of two cities, and had some some uh, Dickens quotes in there as well. But uh, it's really, you know, I, I think you if you have SIDH, I mean, I would. You've written on that. You would. You would suggest starting at seven and a half. Yeah. You can always work your web. You'll know if it's working. You don't have to wait very long. You'll know in a few hours if it's working. And it's really nice if you can get a urine osmolarity, but you don't almost don't need it. What you see is you know you see water coming out in the foley, and you know you've got your. Effect. <laughs> I have one other. I have one comment that really bothers me, and it's it's in the labeling, and it's it's they tell you you know you can't give it at night. Uh, because God forbid the patient might overdiure. You're supposed to give it in the, in the morning, and you're supposed to take away the NPO restriction because God forbid they would overdiure. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Personally, I think these patients you're giving in the hospital, it's a it's a self limiting drug. 
you know, so they have a rapid diuresis for a while. But, you know, the problem is you take away their NPO and people like to drink and then you're going to have half the effect that you would. So I don't necessarily say that don't drink anything while you're on Tolvaptan, but to take to tell them they can drink freely, I think is ridiculous. And to, and to restrict it only during the day, I personally think is ridiculous. He's, I think that's the FDA just being way too careful as, as they, I totally believe with the LFTs. I don't know if you agree with me, Jason. No, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think the only potential advantage of prescribing it in the morning in a hospital is that uh, you and or your fellow won't go crazy checking the sodiums every two hours throughout the night. You're less likely to, if you give it a seven in the morning, you can track it throughout the day, a little bit less concerned at night. When it's prescribed at 7 p.m., then you got a bad, tough night checking sodiums all night long. Yeah, I don't worry about my fellows getting sleep, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. have a question. Repeat the question. So yeah. the question is, why would I use tolvapton in a hospital if I cannot discharge the patient on tolvapton, right? Well, you can discharge the patient on urea. That's what I try to do. Yeah. I get my pharmacist or social worker to come to the hospital the day before the discharge. I want this patient. You go to the website, find what you need to do. Because as you know, urea is not a prescription. It's a nutritional product. So it's not something that we can handle. So we get help, and nine out of my t 10 patients that we treat tolvaptan in a hospital that require outpatient management will transition to urea tablets because we don't have urea in the hospital formulary. So you transition them from a drug that's too expensive to another drug that's too expensive. Good work. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Closes are cheap, if they right? Can't afford the yes, yeah, you're right. Their Lessons are so very cheap. Just fine. <laughs> we're we're gonna have to we're gonna have to move on to our last pick. Okay. Okay. So uh, Melanie. Bringing up the rear. Yeah. There's a lot on the draft board. What, what are you, you looking got, at? <laughs> well, like? there's not a lot of choices. So I'm heading for Manitol. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. I saw it as it unfolded. And I just want to <laughs> say that Manitol is not manna from heaven. <laughs> some have, some authors have invoked that biblical food. That is not it. Um, probably mannitol gets its name from mannose, a six carbon, a six carbon sugar. And, uh, it can be found, uh, and this is for your parties, Anna. It can be found <laughs> in blueberries, cranberries, peaches, and apples, mm -hmm. although not well absorbed. And that's why it's only available IV. Now, apparently, mannitol was discovered in 1806, but it enjoyed most of its love from renal physiologists uh, a century later, uh, including Homer Smith, who tried to use it as a um, substance to study GFR, but didn't work out because of the osmotic diuresis. So it's an osmotic diuretic. Diuretic, it has a low molecular weight, and so it's freely filtered, but then not reabsorbed, and so it causes osmotic with osmotic forces. You have losses of water, sodium, potassium, and divalent cations. If the kidney function is normal, this baby has a short half life. We're talking <laughs> one hour uh, is the half life, and uh, of course, if the kidney function's not normal, it can last much, much longer. Now, since mannitol limits reabsorption, it was proposed that it would be amazing to mitigate or prevent acute kidney injury. And the notion was this, two things. One, with mannitol, then the tubular cells, because they were not reabsorbing things, would not need to use ATP and could rest. Oh. And secondly, 
would decrease inflammation and swelling in the tubular cells, and that swelling might have been the cause of altered geometry in the kidney and therefore uh, the cause of decreased filtration. And so that led to a veritable heyday of experiments with mannitol in uh, a range of settings. And there's a large published literature on this. Everybody got into the act, including even like the chief of cardiac surgery at Mass General writing papers on mannitol's benefits in AKI. And uh, so the idea would be like, we're going to cross clamp the aorta, and then we're going to give some mannitol. <laughs> and so one it's of the be things- fine. <laughs> one of the things that I wondered, and you know, I'm older than many of you, but young enough to still be wondering, like, why did it take so long for mannitol to call, come out of favor? Like, why was it so popular for so long? Um, and I'm not saying we should bring it back, but I'm just saying, why was it so popular for so long? And I think two reasons. One is that when you have mannitol, then there's movement of fluid f- from the cells, and that dilutes a lot of things including creatinine. So the creatinine can transiently look better, okay? Mm. And it causes a brisk diuresis. So the two things that we measure when we're thinking about AKI are the creatinine and the urine output. And it's like, ba-bam, we have, you know, something beneficial. And so I think that's why it stayed around so long. Um, That's my idea. Um, And Nowadays, I th- although it's been used for a lot of things, nowadays I think it's still only used now and then. Um, some of our transplant surgeons still use it in the OR. So right before they open the clamps, you know, after um, doing a kidney transplant, so they have the clamps on, they're about to open the renal artery and renal vein clamp, and then just a little mannitol and see that urine come out in the field gratifying. <laughs> and some of our surgeons still use that. So you can find it in the um, OR report, but I don't think there's good data for that. And there's a crazy range of things that it's been used for in the past. Diagnostic evaluation for AKI, kind of like the ferrosamide stress test, but with yeah. mannitol. Oh. Prevention of AKI, as Makes I mentioned. Yeah. Treatment of oliguria, because yeah. Treatment of hyponatremia, because yeah. yeah. Forced diuresis of Basically, a lot of things. So, myoglobin, cisplatin, cecobarbital, you can find a range of things. And then, even this one is very interesting to me use in end stage kidney disease. So, it was used to avoid dialysis disequilibrium mm-hmm. by infusing, I guess, on the first few treatments with the idea that you're pulling urea out of the cells and that may change things up or adding to PD fluid. I don't know what happened with that. And then lastly, infused at the end of an HD treatment to cause diuresis. Now we're just, you know, using torsamide or ferrosamide. A whole lot of other things, cystic fibrosis. And then, of course, some people still using it for uh, decrease in cerebral, uh, intracerebral pressure, although most people are now using hypertonic saline, and decrease the incidence or need for fasciotomy in compartment syndrome. So um, lots of reasons. I think for me, what I think put this to bed, but maybe others have different uh, opinions, there was a paper um, in New England Journal, Prevention of Contrast, where they compared about 25 people in each group. And this came from the deaconess before the merger, Rick Solomon and Patricio Silva. And uh, they compared, this was to prevent uh, AKI from contrast, 
25 people with uh, just saline, 25 with frosamide and saline, 25 with mannitol and saline, and the saline folks did the best. So I think that put it to bed, but um, I'd welcome other people. Yeah, Melanie, so it's interesting to me because I'm familiar with that paper, you know, when contrast was a popular thing. When it was a toxin, right. Right, when it was toxic. Before Joel hammered me with his (laughs) anti-contrast. We have contrasting opinions on the No, no, but the, the paper was largely criticized because mannitol and furosemide uh, as a way to prevent contrast was intended to increase urine output. And the expectation was that, yeah, you got to match the urine output with replacement of fluid, which those patients didn't get. So essentially, you randomize two protocols, one getting involved in depleted, one not. Of course, saline one. But I, I mean, I, I've always keep... Even today, I keep asking myself, why is that we have completely abandoned mannitol? I, I get, I mean, this contrast study to me is not a strong argument. I know there are plenty of isolated reports of causing tubular damage, or osmotic, osmotic uh, tubular injury causing, but is that it? Are we really, um, is this just a not really a better reason well, why we have the, the other place that it got a lot of uh, press was with Rabdo. Another place where you want to increase the urine output. And there was a randomized trial called the Bickman trial, which was bicarb plus mannitol in, in rhabdomyolysis. And now the trial is negative, but the interesting thing is they enrolled a lot of people with very mild rhabdo. And it just, th- those patients are never going to have bad outcomes. And if you look at the, one of the figures in the trial shows patients with more severe bicarb or more severe rhabdo. And as the CP- CPK went up, the mannitol appeared to be more effective, but mannitol plus bicarb. So yeah. it was it was kind of it was a hint that there may be a, a biologic symbol, uh, signal there, but it wasn't uh, the wrong study to, to show. Right. Yeah. And thank you guys for trying to make me feel better about mannitol. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very cool as a as a thought experiment. Like, I know I know we still use it at IU for or used it at IU for neurosurgery because I got a call one time from a frantic neurosurgery resident that was trying to give it, but the patient was ESRD and was not responding. So. Not surprised. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember when mannitol was being used a lot for intracranial pressure and they would yeah. follow the um, the osmolality, the serum osmolality, and they would yeah. shoot for like, I don't know, 320 or something. The problem was a lot of these patients had renal failure and their osmolarity was always elevated from their urea, which is an effective osmin. So they never really, I mean, we finally gave up. Is that you'll never understand that you got to start with a level and re- increase it from there because they already have a high osmolality, maybe an effective hyperosmolality from from urea or not. But thankfully now they're just using hypertonic saline, which makes it a lot easier because that's an effective osmin and, and whatever else. Um, there's also the you know the occasional case report of uh, osmotic nephrosis from from mannitol. Um, you know it causes uh, so much uh, uh, cellular swelling of the of the tubules that develop renal failure. Um, I think that's pretty rare, but you've seen that we've seen that with sucrose, with certain IVIG and things like that. So it's not entirely benign. I don't mean don't mean to burst your bubble. We got to we have to say something nice about mannitol. If we're going to end now. <laughs> have anything else nice to say about mannitol? <laughs> Very good. So that is. The first and probably only diuretic draft. I think, thank you very much for joining us. This is a lot of fun. Good job.